When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me for this episode is Reverend Steve Lane. Steve is the priest in charge at St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Buffalo, New York. He serves as president of the Recovery Ministries of the Episcopal Church, the RMEC. I met Steve at our first Addiction and Faith Conference in 2018, and we've been close colleagues ever since. He's become a friend. It's such a pleasure to have Steve with us today, to join with us and to tell his story. Steve and I uh, met, oh gosh, how, we, we kind of met at the first conference in 2018. Uh, at that time, you were um, on the board of the Recovery Ministries of the Episcopal Church, and that you were likely to be the next president, and you wanted to do some work together with the FRLC and Fellowship Recovering Lutheran Clergy and the new work that we were doing with this conference. Anyway, thanks for, for being here today. What I'm trying, what we want to do with these podcasts is uh, share stories because that's probably the most powerful thing we have to share. And especially thinking of clergy out there who might be struggling when they hear that uh, there's life after death and that, um, you know, that uh, this isn't the end of the world and that a lot of us go through it. Essentially, we want to hear from you uh, what it was like for you, what happened, and then what it's like now. Pastor Steve is a pastor in uh, Buffalo, New York. And uh, why don't you real quick just tell us about yourself and your and your parish. I am the priest in charge at St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Buffalo, New York. It's my first call. I was ordained as a priest in 2018, and uh, it's been an absolutely blessed call. Prior to that, I was a deacon for a good 10 years. I was a vocational deacon before I was sent to seminary. So tell us, Steve, what was it like? You, you alluded to hitting bottom is not the end of the world, but in a very real sense for me, it was. Uh, it was the end of the world as I knew it. I was started drinking at a very early age, drinking and drugging. I was not particular. I would do whatever you had. If there was a party, the first question was not who's coming, but the question was, what have you got? Uh, and one of the criteria, obviously, was, at least for me, was how much did I had to prepare before I got there? So if they didn't have a, a lot of alcohol, I'd make sure to get drunk before I got there, have one, you know, have a good head start. Or I'd stash extra six-pack in my car. If it was bring your own. I would bring two six-packs, leave one in the car, take in a six-pack, and I would just refill mine from the car as needed. I drank and drugged and and uh, was full steam ahead. From the time I would, by the time I hit 16, I was a daily drinker. 
and I actually dropped out of high school because it was interfering with my drinking. I was at a prep school in New England, and I was one of the campus uh, dealers. So I dealt a lot of drugs primarily to generate income so that I could drink. I had a lot, there were a lot of drugs that I took that I very much enjoyed, but for whatever reason, alcohol was, I don't know if I want to say drug of choice. I mean, that's sort of current terminology, but alcohol was the baseline. Alcohol was like coffee is for me today. The day starts with alcohol. It functions with alcohol. It's not party. It's not celebration. It's not something special. It's just what I do. Um, very much like what I do today with, with coffee. I start my day with coffee and I drink coffee most of the day. And it's just part of what I do. So party for me was what's in addition to alcohol or, you know, do I get to do lots of shots or do I do whatever? So my daily routine from the time I was about 16 till I got sober when I was 23 was I would wake up and the first thing I would do in the morning was do a bong hit, get a little buzz on, do a second hit, get in the shower and showers weren't the same unless I was stoned. And then I'd have a beer right uh, upon getting out of the shower. That was normal. That was my daily routine. I got a job. I dropped out of high school at 16 and got a job in a kitchen. And, you know, I, my first job in that kitchen was cleaning the kitchen. And uh, after I'd been there about a month, they said, you know, the best time to do this is after we close. So I went in at 10 o'clock and they would close. They would lock up the building and there would be me in this restaurant, me and the bar. And uh, as long as they came in the next day and it was all clean, they never said a word. That was a great job. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I knew not to take any of the top shelf liquor and and I didn't take open any bottles. I always drank draft and 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 well booze. And if I wanted to have a particularly wild night, I'd sneak my friends in the back door and they would help me clean. And then we'd really party it on. But we were careful about what. And they never, never bothered that. Of course, they were only paying me $2 an hour. So the drinking continued and the partying continued. I had dated a lot of different people and none of them lasted very long because they just didn't drink enough. I, I, I can think of a lot of ni really nice girls that I dated, but they would have one, sometimes two, and then I'd have to take them home. And then I'd have to go out and finish. Well, I found a woman that could drink right along with me. And of course, I fell in love. So we uh, moved to Arizona and things were great. And I was always in control. She was a little bit farther down that path of alcoholism than I was. And she would have blackouts. Of course, I didn't know that terminology. It would just be after she drank a certain amount, she, a different person would arise. And it was kind of like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. But I was always in control. And I was always able to save her, except a couple of times. I didn't, you know, I was in full-blown alcoholism. But then she, uh, but, but I was in control. And she was not in control. I felt okay as long as I had this woman on my arm. You know, I was worth something. Because, frankly, I didn't feel like I was worth anything. Otherwise, I had an extremely low self-esteem. And so she hit bottom. And I took her to a treatment center or no, I took her to a counselor. Uh, she was just a mess. She had she was due to graduate from University of Arizona and she wasn't taking her exams and she was freaking out. She had put tape over the keyholes, had the windows, curtains closed and 
was really freaked out. And so I managed to get her to agree to go to a counselor. We went to a counselor and the counselor asked, the first question they asked her was, how much do you drink? For the first time, I believe in her life, she admitted that she drank a lot. And then they said, do you think you can stop? And she said, I don't think so. We put her into treatment. And of course, uh, I didn't have that kind of money to get her into treatment. So I called my parents and said, I need to borrow $4,000 for treatment for her and for me for alcoholism. And they agreed without even really asking many questions. They loaned me that money. But anyway, she went in. And while she was in treatment center, I decided I was going as the significant other. And I would go to family night. And, and then when they went out to meetings, I could go with them. So I'd go with them. And, and I went to Al-Anon. And Al-Anon, I found uh, very uncomfortable because they would. A- I, I always wanted to ask if they drank. And I never dared to ask if they drank. But anyway, we would go to meetings and, and I would... Uh, and, and then um, I tried to stop drinking because I thought, well, once she gets out of treatment center, I should probably stop drinking for a couple of weeks until she gets it figured out. And then I can start drinking again. And I couldn't stop. It was the first time in my life I'd ever tried to not drink. And I'm thinking back from the time I first started drinking when I was 12 till when I became a daily drinker at 16, I'd never said no. There had been times when it had been inappropriate. I got in trouble. So then I did enter into an outpatient program in Tucson, and I started going to meetings on a regular basis. She got out of treatment on um, New Year's Day, January 1st. And January 2nd, she said, told me she was leaving me. And I had nothing left. I had nothing left. So I was ready to kill myself. I had gone to meetings for a few weeks and I had heard this sort of the pitter patter and, and gee, if you uh, are willing to go to any length and, and keep coming back, it works if you work it and, you know, and, and the uh, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And, and at the end of that time, if you're not totally satisfied, we'll gladly refund your misery. Well, she said she was leaving. So I said, screw that. And I went out and got really drunk. Um, I went out to the nearest store and they didn't have hard booze. So I bought a six pack there and then uh, drove to the next door that I knew had hard booze, bought a half gallon of vodka, went back to the house that was now very, very, very empty and proceeded to get good and drunk. Um, I don't remember much past that. Uh, The next morning when I woke up, the bottle was empty. So, and I had gotten sick around the house multiple places. I didn't successfully kill myself with alcohol poisoning. And then that day, January 3rd, 1982, I spent that whole day trying to decide what am I going to do with my life? And I squazed the bottom of every empty bottle in the house and had a little water and drank that and took every bowl that I had and scraped it out and smoked all that resin and I took the mirror and licked the mirrors and and uh, you know everything I could think of and, and I finally came to the decision that I there was no point going on so I had been building up a stash of sleeping pills son of a gun if she didn't steal them she, she had taken them 
And uh, so today I, I uh, am grateful for her for saving my life because uh, I would have taken those. I was ready to say the heck with it. And those were gone. So then I got this brilliant idea. Now, remember, I'm in a, in a hungover alcoholic, still drunk. I mean, I drank a half gallon of vodka. It was probably good for the whole day anyway. Uh, fog. And I and I this this thing that I'd heard that said, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Give it all you got for 90 days. And at the end of that time, we'll gladly refund your misery. And I thought, well, 90 days, that's three months. I could get three scripts of sleeping pills. And my doctor, you know, that I told, oh, I'm having trouble sleeping, uh, had given me a prescription. I figured three months would be enough. I'll try this thing for 90 days. I'll give it 90 days. So I marked the calendar. And I had lost my job at that point. I couldn't function. And I had this apartment and this actually was a house uh, that we were paying rent on. It was a rental. And uh, I had paid through the end of the month. I had paid January. I had no job, had nowhere to go. So I just went to a lot of meetings. I went to meetings, went to meetings. I didn't have anything else to do. And uh, one of the other slogans that I heard all the time was keep coming back. It'll get better. It just kept getting worse. You know, the, my major criteria was that she would come back because Having her on my arm was what gave me a sense of self-worth. But so I kept going to meetings. And then there's the night and and, and I I've, I keep trying to think of another name for this, but I can't. I, I call it the fuck it night. There was this night. It was a Friday night and I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do this anymore. I could not drink anymore. Screw it. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get drunk. So I got in my car. And I went out and I pulled into the parking lot of the bar that I had used to go to every day. And I heard this voice in my head. Now, I got to tell you this story about the voice. There's a, there was an old geezer. His name was Art. And Art used to go to meetings all the time. And I'd see him almost every day. And Art's favorite slogan was one day at a time. And he would say, you know, sometimes one day at a time is too long. So break it down. He said, break it down. Just don't drink from now till the next meeting. And then he said, sometimes that's too long, too. He says, that's OK. Break it down. Just don't drink for the next hour. He says, if that's too long, break it down. Just don't drink for the next 15 minutes. And he said, just keep breaking it down. He said, even if you have to go from tick to talk, don't drink now. And I tell you, I in those first few weeks, I heard him say that over and over. He always seemed to be looking at me when he was saying it. <laughs> and uh, so I pull into that parking lot and I hear Art's voice in my head, not this bar. And I'm like, really? OK, so I went to another bar. I pulled into another bar's parking lot and I heard Art's voice, just not this bar. And that night. I drove over 100 miles. I went to every bar I'd been to in Tucson, which was pretty much every bar in Tucson, most of them anyway. And I drove over 100 miles, and I at every parking lot, I heard, no, not this bar. Not this bar. And then 2 o'clock came. The bars closed at 2 o'clock. And I hadn't gotten drunk. I hadn't gone into a bar to get drunk. And it was like a, it was like, How'd that happen? Oh, my God. That was the first time in my life that I had not gotten drunk when I said I was going to go get drunk. That was the first time that it ever happened. I was 
I was clearly not in control that night. And I was like, oh my God, how'd that happen? And then it was like, oh my God. You know, one of the things I heard a lot about in meetings was talk about finding a higher power. And you know, I had a sponsor who said, you know, just stay in the first three steps. You surrender your will. You come to believe that there is a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity and you surrender your will and your life over to that power. Well, I had, I had a belief that there was a God. What I didn't believe was is that I mattered. I didn't think I mattered one whit to any kind of God. And, you know, I believed in a creator and, um, and all that, but, but it was like, so what? It was like, you know, church, I didn't bother with church. Church is a nice thing, and there's good music sometimes, and, and you know, sometimes you hear some good messages, and there's some neat people, and yada, yada, but so what? That night, I got filled with a sense, an overflowing sense, that not only is there a God, but God cares about me personally. Me, Steve, this person that was not worth anything. I didn't feel like I was worth anything still, and yet, God cared enough about me to keep me out of the bar that night. And that's where it turned for me. That's where it turned. That's when I really took that third step. It was like, so I look at this as like there was that night. It was like I'd run my life and I had totally ruined it and destroyed it. And it was in pieces. And, and, and I had nowhere else to go. I had no hope. Well, actually, I, I did have a bit of hope. Because I saw other people in meetings that had been as bad as I was. And they said, it will get better. Just stick with it. Don't drink even if your butt falls off. Right? But, but I, again, I didn't think I was worth it. After that night, I found hope. And I came to believe that there really is a power greater than myself that not only can restore me to sanity, but will. Because for that higher power, I matter. So I started really working the program in earnest that spirituality embedded in those 12 steps is a powerful thing. Cleaning out the looking at myself, which I didn't like doing, right? And then learning to stop blaming others for all my problems and looking at my part in it and seeing where I set myself up. That poor girl uh, that, that, that I had taken to Tucson and I was giving her every, she, everything she wanted. I was doing it all for her. She was also my hostage because my sense of self-worth was based on her being okay. And, um, and it was the right thing for her to leave. Didn't think so for years, but that was the thing. I started going to school. I got a degree. I went back, finished high school before I got sober. I finished high school part-time while I worked full-time. But I went to college and I got a diploma. Then I got, I met somebody in the meetings and we got married and I landed a job at NASA and I moved from Arizona to Alabama to work at the Marshall uh, Space Flight Center there. And, and it was like, and all of this was not because I was running the show anymore. When I did that third step, it was like, okay, I'd run my life into the ground. And it was like four quarters and the game was over and I lost badly. And now what I had was a chance for a new life, but it's not mine. I get to live it. I get to do it. I get to do those things, but it's God's will. It's God's life. It's overtime. I'm living overtime.
So if I died today, I had this whole bunch of time from when my life ended. My life ended on the day that I stopped drinking, January 3rd, 1982. That's when my life ended. And it was a miserable failure. It was kind of like, I don't know if any of you have any Detroit Lions fans or for many years, the Buffalo Bills fans. That's what my life was. I had a I had an 0-12 season, baby. You know, it was like it was over. And, and now I have this new life. And this new life is is like my expectations are not the same because I don't expect to it's not about what I get. It's about every day is a get. Is every day that I wake up, it's a gift. And and the more I work with others, the more I reach out with others the more reinforcing, the more I, I'm, I'm living that third step, the better it is. Well, then there's this thing about the collar, being ordained and getting involved in the church. I was very happy in the rooms, the 12-step rooms. I was, <laughs> I was good with that. I got married. I had three children. I ended up leaving that job with NASA and, and fell into the pet store business. I had opened my own pet store. I was now, you know, doing a life. And But it, it got to the, the big question of, so what's really matters? What's the point? What's the most important thing to you? And it wasn't making money. It wasn't having a wife and a house and a two-car garage and two and a half children. It, that was not, I mean, that was all, you know, the American dream, but really what really matters. And for me, if it, it, it revolved around step three, surrender my will and my life over to the care of God and um, praying only for knowledge of God's will for me. That's what I want to do is I want to do the best I can to know what God's will is. So I had young children. I wanted them to grow up with an idea of a higher power. Because I figure everybody hits that wall at some point, or most people do. And if they have a God that they can pray to at that time, that would be a good thing. So I took them to church, and I, I ended up in this church that I thought was gobbledygook, and I started hearing 12-step talk in church. Amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. They do the same sort of thing there. And I started getting more involved. So then I went through process to become a deacon, because that's what really mattered. That's what was most important. And we started a 12-step worship service, which was that place because it was like the language is different. Church language and 12-step language, they're, they're saying the same thing, but they're saying it differently. And so we started a service that was saying both. We would have a reading from the Bible. We'd have a reading you know, from Scripture or from some religious uh, you know, uh, theologians or, or religious leading speakers and, and also 12 step literature. And we draw them together around a theme and then we talk about it. And, and it was, became a really powerful, uh, worship experience and Thursday nights and, and you come in and, and in a church setting, you come in and you kneel down in a pew and you talk, whisper silently with your friends or whatever you do. And, uh, and then the, the service starts and when it's over, you can have coffee hour and fellowship. Well, we, we, we were sort of working with that model, but we set up the coffee and the fellowship table first and people coming in from the rooms went right to the table and grabbed the donut and a cup of coffee. So this service started with coffee and donuts and it changed the whole tenor of it. And it became, it wasn't a meeting and it wasn't a church service. 
but it was a meeting and it was a church service. It became a really powerful thing. Uh, we had a pickup band of people as they were getting sober. Uh, I've learned that musicians have a high rate of uh, drug addiction. We ended up with uh, a bunch of really good musicians. We had a pickup band and they were making some really good music. And we started having like 100 people on a Thursday night. Thursday night, who would have known? Uh, powerful. But then, and I was the deacon, I was leading it. But then there were some missing pieces. And one of the big missing pieces was we came up on Monday, Thursday, because it was every Thursday, right? And the first year we took we took Thanksgiving off. We took off Monday, Thursday. Um, when, if Christmas was on Thursday, we'd take that off. But, you know, in the rooms, they don't take days off. In the rooms, you go because you need that lifeline connection to others. So we started doing the services every Thursday, no matter what the day was. Monday, Thursday came along and it was like, you know, one of the other things that's not there is communion the sacrament of the Holy Communion. So I brought in a ringer. I brought in a priest. And we modified the, because it's really not an official service, so we modified the Eucharistic prayers and played with them a little bit to make them more 12-step friendly. And the uh, the priest did the U Eucharist, celebrate communion with just bread, and we passed the bread around. And there was something really powerful in that that I'd never experienced in church before. That that these we became us became a unified around this bread. We were all one bread and one body, and it was an incredibly powerful service. It was like I was the leader of this group. It was it was you know I mean I I started it with a group of other people, and I was one who who gave the reflection every week and we brought in this ringer and he wasn't really part of the group. And it was, that was the one off note. If you will, if life is like a, a symphony, he was out of tune. He was playing to a different key. And it was like, and, and I was doing a lot of pastoral care. I would, the people that were coming saw me as their pastor and they started calling me pastor. And I said, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm a deacon. And they said, yeah, right. Pastor. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I entered seminary. Well, I went to the bishop and uh, went through that process. It took seven years, but I got ordained as a priest. And and now I have a church. But in that time, it's very interesting because now when I preach, if I struggle with what is this lectionary saying, I take it to the steps. And it's like, how does it fit into 12 steps spirituality? And when I find that, then I'm good to go. I know what this is talking about. I look at the church and my Christian faith through the lens of 12 step because it's really step three that saved my life, right? It was when I was, when I got to that place that night when my best intention was to go get drunk and it didn't happen despite my best intention. So I, that's the God I serve today is the God of we, is the, the fellowship. I've become quite the Trinitarian, the, the creator God. Right. God, the father, I like creator God. And then the Holy Spirit is that place within. And 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 12 step spirituality says that it's in it's there that God is found in the final analysis. It's in there. And for me, that's where the Holy Spirit resides is there's a Holy Spirit within me that resonates. Right. When I'm hearing somebody talking about God and it resonates, you know, it's like, yeah, that that's the Holy Spirit. 
And then Jesus, which is kind of like what the church is about. And Jesus is the we. Jesus is us. Jesus is the relationship between me and you, me and the community. And, 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 you know, the, the, when Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. And that's where I find Jesus. And it's Jesus in the relationship, not Jesus the creator, not Jesus in here. It's we. And, and when I'm left to my own devices, me and my Holy Spirit, I'm not in, I'm, I'm in, I'm on thin ice. I need all three. I need that creator God and I need the Holy Spirit within and I need Jesus. I need that community of faith to, to, to correct me when I'm messed up. Tell me one of those funky parables, right? <laughs> Make me look at it differently, right? Because when I'm, when I don't have that community, I don't look at it differently. I just look at it through these glasses and I don't see the world the same. I need to hear it from different places. So the journey goes on. It's been 38 years since I've had a drink or a drug. And uh, and that's not because I'm so good. You know, people that don't get it, don't get it. And they'll say, oh, you're so great. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, I'm blessed. It's by the grace of God and the fellowship of other sufferers like myself that I have a day sober. Whereas our cold time used to say, even if it's from tick to talk, just don't drink now. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. So uh, tell me uh, a little bit about the RMEC. Well, yeah, the Recovery Ministries of the Episcopal Church. When I... uh, first started going back to church, my pastor was a guy named Ward Ewing. 
And Ward Ewing, he was on the board of the Recovery Ministries of Episcopal Church. It had a different name then, but uh, they changed the name. Uh, but it's it was in response to addiction issues of a couple of multiple nature. One is people that are in recovery in 12-step groups, but are also in the church, is helping them find that place. It's also there for, oddly enough, priests and other uh, people that work in the church have addiction issues too. And uh, they're not immune. <laughs> I don't know if it's a higher rate or lower rate, but they're certainly not immune. And how does the church deal with that? And uh, historically, the church has just sort of hidden it, right? As we've done with so many of our sins, we hide it. So this this group was help, designed to help bring that out and set standards. And also in the Episcopal Church in particular, uh, drinking was a very strong part of the culture. Uh, it was a normal occurrence when the governing body would get together. They would get together for cocktails before their meeting. It was a normal occurrence for their annual meeting or if they were ever having to get together to have it centered around alcohol. And we have uh, recovery ministries have been dealing with that to help the church wean itself off of that dependence so that uh, and people that aren't able to wean themselves. We ha are there to help pick them up and help them find a way that there is a life with uh, without drinking. Uh, we have a general convention every three years and we've been putting forward resolutions. And, uh, well, I should be more clear. There have been resolutions presented. The Recovery Ministries hasn't sponsored them, but we've supported them. Um, and it's getting better and better And how to deal with this uh, and how to deal with the fallout from this. And it's not just the addict, but all the people affected by the addict. Well, I know uh, we have a, an organization that's uh, similar to yours, but we're Lutheran instead of Episcopalian. And I know for us, it's been a little frustrating to have the church uh, pay attention to this issue uh, and to get on their radar. They don't seem to have a box for it. Um, have you found that to be a challenge in the Episcopal Church? Maybe the Episcopal Church had a bigger problem. Um, you know, the, the, the standing joke that they call the Episcopalians the Wiscopalians. Um, <laughs> It was a joke because there's, there was validity to it. Maybe it's that. Maybe, you know, I'm not sure why, but it's been on our plate, on the church's plate, since the late 70s. Uh, the first resolutions around this issue were presented in 1979. And so it's been around for a while. Uh, we have a number of our leadership that are also in recovery. And that, that certainly helps. Uh, and that are out about that, although a lot of them are not. Um, some are. There's nobody in the church that openly says that they are a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of Alcoholics Anonymous's tradition that if you're a member, you don't share that at the level of press, radio, or film or publicly. But there are people that are in recovery that are in leadership in the church. It's coming. There's still you know, you still go to parties and, and the center of the party is the punch bowl that's loaded, right? It still happens. Diocesan conventions where you go and their cocktail hour is the prime social socializing time. We're working it, working it, but it's one, one diocese at a time, one church at a time. Thank you for sharing your story. I really, uh, really appreciate it. And that's really the first time I've heard your full story. So that was really a gift for me to hear. So I appreciate that. I appreciate our partnership and our work together. And uh, I look forward to the future with um, our involvement together and in working on this 
uh, I, there's a lot of work to do still. Yes, and and, and your addiction and grace group, um, I'm I I watch it with uh, great uh, applause and and encouragement. Um, I think you're spot on with what you're looking to do, and uh, I applaud your enthusiasm and am awed by your audacity. <laughs> and, uh, and and there's I think there is a lot of support. And it's just a case of, you know, like in anything, it's not bashing those that don't, right? Um, and it's but to encouraging by supporting those that are interested in recovery and helping to pick up the damage of those that are affected by addiction. There's a long way we can go. That's what's really, for me, a passion is there's, there's so much collateral damage from this issue that most of the world doesn't see. And uh, that's where I think we can uh, hopefully open some eyes. They say for every addict, there's five people directly affected. So if 10% of your population is an alcoholic or addict, then that that makes about 50% of your population directly affected. Well, so thank you, Steve. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization. Mm